A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So what happened was, so I'd had all these positive experiences with general authorities. I knew that they felt my pain. I knew that they felt like these issues were legitimate. And so in this process, I get an email out of the blue. And it's from this guy. And he says, I go to church with someone who works directly for Dan, Daniel Peterson in the Maxwell Institute. And he told me that the Maxwell Institute has commissioned a hit piece, and he called it a hit piece, on you. He said it's over 100 pages, footnoted, and it's all about character assassination. It's all about uh, trying to expose you as a fraud, trying to expose you as duplicitous, trying to expose you as someone who's trying to, a wolf in sheep's clothing, trying to lead the people astray, trying to expose you as an antichrist, basically. So, um, so I was like, what? Like... I couldn't believe it. Like, and, and after having talked to the apostle and the general authority and all the positive things they had said to me, they, um, I couldn't believe that this is something that the church would want its name on. Right? Because right. they were all about how do we reduce the pain? How do we solve these problems? Thank you for the good work you're doing to help us. They were using my data and my research to help them solve their problems. Right? Like, why would the church want to attack me? when I'm helping them. So it didn't make sense, and it felt out of the spirit of what these two general authorities would want. It just felt like they would never bless this. And so I'd been trying to interview Daniel Peterson for years, and he would, for a while he would decline, and then he would just stop answering my emails. So I had gone like two or three years emailing Daniel Peterson. This is my memory. I could be wrong, but my memory is, and I've gone back to look, I couldn't find a response from Daniel Peterson within three or four years of this episode with many attempts at, at, at reaching out to him. So I had no confidence that if I just sent Daniel Peterson an email and said, hey, I'm not sure you should do this, or are you sure you want to do this, or can I see the article, or will you give me a chance to respond? And, and it sounded like the article was in its final editing stages for being published. And so I just I said... I decided what I would do is I would email Daniel Peterson and I would copy this general authority that I had just had these awesome meetings with. And I would say, Daniel Peterson, is this true what I've heard? And and I just said, I if it's true, I don't think this is a good move. Um, uh, and And I was thinking about it from several perspectives. One is that I had done this survey, and one of the clear findings in this survey, when I asked people what made them leave, they would say, Fair and Farms accelerated my disaffection from the church. Initially, I found their answers valuable, but over time, the fact that they would, instead of really give substantive answers, the fact that they would attack the people asking the questions, that showed me that they didn't have good arguments, right? And the arguments that they did give were bad, and being mean-spirited and unchristlike is the worst possible way to stand up for what Christ represented. And so I had all this data, these people telling me apologists damaging my testimony. And they would name Daniel Peterson by name and Lou Midgley by name. And so I, I, I still have the angel on my shoulder, right? The devil's saying, you know, burn the thing down. The devil's saying, all press is good press. This is a good thing for you. Let farms and fair attack you because that'll just make more people know about you, right? That's what the devil was saying. But the angel was saying, you love this church and you love BYU. I graduated from BYU. And and there are all these 20, 30,000 people that listen to the podcast who feel like you've helped them stay in the church. And so if, if with BYU's name and the church's 
printing press, they're going to come and eviscerate and attack the one person that many, and I, this is pride and it's not healthy, but the, but the person that many saw as a lifeline to their being able to stay in the church, because I did start stay LDS. I do, I, I can show you hundreds and even thousands of emails where people say I did help them stay in the church. All those people are going to say, well, if, if the church doesn't want John, if the church is going to call John an anti-Mormon, if the church is going to attack John, number one, that's a further sign they don't have anything substantive to stand on. But number two, I'm not, I don't want to be a part of it. I just, I felt like that's what the result was going to be. So this wasn't me trying to suppress criticism. I'm criticized all over the place. I'm used to it. This wasn't me trying to stop true academic inquiry. This was me honestly listening to that angel say, this is going to harm BYU. This is going to harm farms. This is going to harm the church. This is going to harm apologetics. And this is going to harm you. And it's going to harm your family. And it's going to harm all these people who kind of are thinking there's a lifeline. And so that's that. So that so all I did was email Daniel Peterson, copy the general authority and say, are you sure you want to do this? Right. And I, I the, in the email, did you express that? Yeah. Did you say this is this is I pasted harm? I pasted um, the open ended responses from the survey saying that these tactics damage faith. I pasted those into the email. Okay. And I just said, this is going to be a lose-lose for everyone. That's what I said. So I didn't hear back. Dana, well, Dana Peterson did write back. And it was like, my brother's died. You, you know, this is awful. And you're blackmailing me. And, you know, the summary that I would give is is just, he sort of said, stick it. It's just like, you're, you're not going to intimidate me. And that was it. Didn't get anything else for Dana Peterson. So... I felt like he was going to go ahead with it. Then I go to the UVU conference where I present the findings of the survey that I developed for the church, that the church was using and presenting to its own own officials, right? And Lou Midgley comes up after the presentation and, and he just starts yelling at me, swagging his finger in my face. And he started, he started talking about a missionary who died on my mission while I was... Um, on my mission. So there's this elder, Elder Bartholomew. We had been companions, zone leaders together. Later, he transferred to a different zone. And while he was in another zone, he died in a boating accident and they never found his body. And he started the way I, the way I understood Lou Midgley's line of questioning was that in this article that they were preparing for me, he was going to try and tie me to the death of a missionary. Right? Wow. And then he started saying, you knew Grant Palmer back when you were BYU, right? Because he had this whole this whole Paul Pry thing that they did with Grant Palmer and and accusing Grant Palmer of doing all this fraudulent stuff where he faked believing so that he could keep his salary. And and he wrote under these pseudonyms and they had this whole conspiracy theory that may or may not have been true. But what was bizarre is that he was claiming that I was in conspiracy with Grant Palmer in the early 90s before I'd ever heard of Grant Palmer's name or read any of these difficult books like Von Brody or Michael Quinn or any of that stuff. I was still a Rush Limbaugh homophobic conservative when I was at BYU, though I had some liberal leanings, right? Right. And so Midgley was making it sound like he was going to tie me to the death of a missionary on my mission, tie me to Grant Palmer in the early 90s. And then he started saying threatening things about contacting my bishop and my stake president and and making it sound like he was going to they were going to come after me they were going to come after my church membership and it felt awful it felt like uh the it just felt like the tack dogs were out and they were going to kneecap me you know and you know i didn't know what to do because i wasn't going to be slandered and people read that stuff and it's it's going to have BYU's name on it and the church's name on it that's devastating especially if they're going to just tell a bunch of lies and so i i called a couple distinguished ambassadors of mormonism and asked them what i should do and they said you need to call the general authority use my name and have a conversation with them because he hadn't responded to my email and so I didn't, I didn't do anything other than call the general authority. He took my call, called me back. 
And I said, this is what I know, that this article is being planned and this is how Lou Midgley treated me and this is what they were saying. And I just want you to know that I think everyone's going to lose if they publish this article. And I've been trying to help you, you know. And the general authority said, I'll take care of it. And if you don't hear back from me, it's because it's taken care of. And rumor was that an apostle got involved. May have been the same apostle that I had had lunch with. I don't know. But what I know is that is that um, stuff was communicated from several general authorities to the head of the Maxwell Institute. The head of the Maxwell Institute um, sat Lou Midgley and, and Daniel Peterson down and said, we're not going to publish this article. And it wasn't because I made some legal threat. I didn't like have a lawyer and threaten to sue. I did say that if they slander me, I'm not going to just sit by and be accused of the death of a missionary or associations with people that I didn't even know. But I didn't threaten to sue. I wasn't trying to suppress to save myself. I was trying to think about how this would help anybody, and I couldn't figure it out. And I just said, is this really how you want to handle things as a church? And they made that decision. Right. And and Daniel Peterson says, oh, well, no one ever read the article. Well, he certainly could have sent it to me. He certainly could have let me read it. He could have given me a chance to respond, but he didn't want to. Right. And so it's his, it's his fault that no one read the article. And if, if his employee, if someone working for him tells me it's a hit piece and that it's detestable, and this person actually sent me the five-page memo that they sent to the head of the Maxwell Institute protesting the publishing of this paper, if, if, if that's coming from the inside of the Maxwell Institute, then I don't think I'm on shaky ground raising questions about whether this is good for everybody involved. And it turns out that for the Maxwell Institute and for these general authorities, it was clear that, that this paper wasn't going to do anyone any good. Let me, um, I, I want to go back and ask a few questions about the situation from your perspective, um, being someone who had already experienced criticism, I'm sure, from both sides. Do you feel like in terms of the amount of scrutiny and criticism that you received during the situation with the Maxwell Institute and Dan Peterson that it, it got, it, it reached its worst level? Were you prepared for it or had you already kind of weathered the storm of the debate. But by the time of all this, I was really spiritually sick. I was, I was, I was trying to save the world with these conferences and communities. I, I was emotionally detached from myself. I was emotionally detached from my wife and kids. I was playing the role. I was doing my duty as a husband and a father, but I was checked out emotionally and I was checked out spiritually. I was totally spiritually malnourished and neglecting that side of me. And uh, I was I was angry. And it's like I'd put the ring on and I and I was standing in full fury ready to take down anybody who opposed me. And so I was simultaneously sick inside, but like full of righteous indignation. And it was a really for my soul, it was a sickening, sad place to be. And as I look back, I realize that one of the reasons I've been so angry at the apologists is because I've been doing so much of what I accuse them of doing, that I've been careless, that I've given bad answers, that I've been disrespectful, that I've attacked and disrespected belief. And, um, I, you know, I was, they, they, it was like a mirror. They were a mirror of me just on different sides of the, of the pole. I hadn't spent enough time really with, with thoughtful believers and ever showed enough respect to, to credible belief. And I think that, well, you know, you're only angry sometimes when you see in others your own deficiencies that you hate about yourself. And I am guilty of that. And I'm as much of a demagogue. I've been as much of a demagogue as, as Daniel Peterson or Lou Midgley in my own way with the veneer of sincerity and with objectivity. And I, at the time, I felt like I was sincere, but I, I feel like in the soul, I wasn't in a healthy place. So I was not operating from a centered, healthy place. I was operating from a broken, angry place. Okay, so now we need to really <clears throat> dive into that, if you don't mind. I, one of the questions that occurred to me as you were speaking earlier, um, 
And it goes back to that question of looking the existence of God in the face and, and really wondering if there's a God. Did you maintain any practice of spiritual development during that time? Did you, did, were you in a place of saying prayers or did you look for um, or experience things from a spiritual perspective? Or, I mean, how, how was that side of your, of your living going? I, I, I stopped going to church for the most part. I'd stopped paying tithing. I stopped, didn't read the scriptures, stopped praying, stopped going to the temple. Um, uh, and I was even questioning basic morality and whether I wanted to stay married and whether I wanted to stay committed to my family. I mean, I was, I was as estranged and ostracized spiritually, morally as I could be. I mean, I still kept most of the commandments, uh, but, um, no, I was completely spiritually neglectful and malnourished and emotionally disconnected from everybody. Even from the perspective of like spiritual practices outside of Mormonism. So it wasn't like you were trying to replace <clears throat> that with like meditation or anything like that. No, in our family, you know, there are phases, but when we, when we went inactive for the very first time, we were very committed to keeping all the best of Mormonism. So we kept having family home evening. I kept paying tithing, but it was to charitable institutions instead of the church. We kept having spiritual thoughts, singing, you know, hymns or whatever. Um, we kept having spiritual thoughts with our kids. I was trying to read Eckhart Tolle and do mindfulness, and we would have nature walks and try and connect with nature. And we worked really hard to supplement um, our spirituality. But, uh, you know, this is one of the conclusions that I came to. But when you're on your own, and especially when you haven't done the work, the soul work, emotionally and, and spiritually yourself, it's hard to maintain that for for the family. Um, so, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say I had never prayed or never picked up the scriptures or never did spiritual things. But I started trying to do that. But because I was around so many people in pain always on a conquest, always so busy. Because remember, I'm getting my PhD, working full-time, and holding international conferences, and taking phone calls and having lunches and dinners with everyone who's in pain. And I just, I completely, it's like I wasn't spiritually or emotionally in tuned, and I was running from myself. And so the way I would run from myself is to work extra hard, believe that I was doing this important mission, saving the world, helping everyone else, but from a broken place where inside I was totally decaying, spiritually and emotionally. Um, okay. I want to ask the question then. You mentioned how the you, you had started doing all of these conferences and that maybe you were, uh, were you alluding to this idea that you were trying to use these conferences as a way to um, establish some sort of like spiritual community again, or I mean, how did the Mormon yeah, conferences? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I, you know the 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 angel, you know the the devil on my shoulder would say burn it all down, but the angel said it's not ethical to just deconstruct everyone's beliefs and then not leave them with anything to replace it, and that's what exposure to this stuff does. I don't. I don't take responsibility that people struggle in their faith after listening to Mormon stories because I didn't I didn't tell the first vision in nine different ways. That was Joseph. And I didn't translate with a stone in a hat or marry 14-year-olds or incorporate Masonic things into the temple. Like, that's just fact. You know, I didn't... I, I didn't establish the DNA of the Native Americans or, uh, you know... Uh, neglect to put pre-Columbian horses on America like that just that I didn't do any of that that's just what I learned and so you know I, I've never wanted to intentionally lead people astray but I um, but I'm aware that that's what what happens when you learn this stuff because that's what I what I struggled with right so so the angel the angel on my shoulder said no it, you want humanity to advance. You don't want people to just throw their morality away. I started seeing people 
is and I was doing it. I, you know, it's like there's this weird thing that happens when you lose your when you lose your faith in Mormonism. You immediately start questioning your morality. Wow, I never had sex before I was married. I've only had sex with one person. Like I don't know anything. What if what if sex is way better with other people or in other ways? Or what am I missing? Is alcohol cool? Like I've still never tried alcohol, but I was like, what if that's really fun and interesting? Like, yeah. And and I just started saying, there's this whole world out there that I haven't experienced, and maybe I wouldn't I wouldn't have married Margie if I, you know, if I had to do all over again. And I, you know, I maybe my family would be better off if Margie and I were split because, you know, because you know we'd be getting along better. Why weren't we getting along? Because I was totally emotionally disconnected, but. You start thinking these things and, and you start wondering, wow, well, these other women are attractive or experimenting sexually. And you start thinking about this whole world and you see these people sort of it, it reminds me of the Lehi's dream and the, I don't know, the great and spacious building. Right. You start seeing all this stuff and it's enticing. and It looks fun. But but, you know, the good Mormon boy in me and the angel on my shoulder, what I would say, that's dangerous. That's 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 scary you don't want to go there and so and you don't want to lead people there and that's what it felt like was happening all these people were just checking out of the church and then they were dropping their spouse and they were sleeping around and drinking and doing drugs and doing all the scary stuff and i just felt irresponsible i felt like that was irresponsible so i started these communities thinking i'm not trying to create a religion because there's no theology or doctrine here and i don't want to be a prophet that's a uh, that was a broken model in my mind. But somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to bring these people together to support each other. And so the idea behind the conferences and the communities was, let's let people in Houston who are struggling support each other. Let's people in London support each other. And and let's create these these conferences where it's inspirational. It's tell your story and it's let's sing hymns and say prayers and still be inspirational and if it's if it's secular, let's have it be spiritual and moral at the same time. And I was just trying to experiment and model sort of post-literalistic secular spirituality and community, right? Because why did these people deserve to no longer get casseroles when they have cancer or their wife's pregnant? Just because they learned these things about the church that made them not be able to participate. It felt unfair that they automatically got unplugged from that social resource. So I'd say, let's create that social resource in 90 cities across the world. And let's bring general conferences to them where they can feel inspired and uplifted and begin to construct for themselves a a positive, moral, even spiritual, secular post-Mormonism. And that was the that was the goal behind it. So I need to ask a few questions about your own um, thought process. I assume because you have the devil and the, the angel on your shoulder the whole time, that even as you're kind of exploring the ideas of letting go of kind of the morals that you've always held on to, that, you know, the angel is trying to pull you back. You know, I mean, that must have created quite a bit of cognitive dissonance. Did you discuss that with Margie? Did you talk about that with your wife? Was it, was it all internal? Did she was she aware of that struggle that was going on? Well, what what started happening was I I kind of just threw down the gauntlet with Margie and I she had been really patient up to a point in Mormon stories, but then it was just I wasn't emotionally available to her or the kids. I was physically available. I'd read the kids stories, put them to bed, I would get up early and help make breakfast. I would you know, I would do the fatherly things, but at dinner, they'd be talking and my mind would be somewhere else. Or, you know, on the weekends, or I, I was rarely listening, I was rarely paying attention, I was just totally mentally about saving the world. So at some point, Margie was just like, this is getting old. And, and I don't like where you're going. Spiritually and emotionally, I don't like the feel of our family. And I think you're neglecting some really important things. And frankly, you're giving the best to everyone else. And you're you're kind of leaving us with the scraps. I've heard how you talk to the people you talk to on the phone and in dinner and lunch. 
and you're kind of irritable at home and and distant and detached. And at some point she just said, I, I, I wish you would stop this. And I was so proud and arrogant. I was just like, no, this is take it or leave it. It's Mormon stories. I'm saving the world. You can either get on board with me or just support me. But this is what I'm doing. And it's awful. I'm so embarrassed that and I wasn't mean like that. Like it was it was a respectful conversation. It was more like, come on, sweetie, this is what I meant to do. And please support me in this because of all this pain. And and at some point she just said, OK, you know, and that's when I started traveling all the time and being gone all the time. And I really turned it on. But it it became worse and worse. I just became more and more distant, more and more irritable. It's like I'd worn that ring and I was becoming more and more consumed by pride and ego and power and anger. And it reached a point where, um, you know, we basically had to start asking the question, do we want to stay married? And I think I was so drunk with mission that I was I was pretty much ready to say, let's let me go do this because you're clearly not on board. You're not really being a partner to me in this. I might be able to help more people if I just go. It might be better for the kids. It was awful. And, and um, yeah. So we reached that point, and Margie just was amazing. She just said, I'm going to love you and let you do this. And I almost self-destructed. I came really close to just completely throwing everything away. So let me let me take a minute here and think in terms of time. Um, when is this in reference to the the interview with the Larsons? That was in January of 2012. Yeah, right right around. That yeah, time. that was that was right in the middle of it. Okay. Um, okay. It was sort of it was sort of September. 2011 was when we it was no it was kind of like it was May it was Mayish where we had the first May or June where we had the first Mormon Stories conference in Salt Lake City in 2011 then we did the Michael Quinn event um then we then we did as I remember we did conferences in DC and we did conference uh we did one in San Diego and then we did Circling the Wagons, which was my first event for gay and lesbian Mormons. It was a wonderful event. And that was in November of 2011. And yeah, <clears throat> by November, I was uh, probably by August. It was really by August of 2011 where I was like ready to just leave everything that was most important to me. Um, I, I, I rarely want to talk but I, I want to interject just my perspective of what was happening because it was so new to the Mormon stories community uh, during that time I listened to the Quinn broadcast um, I I listened to the the talk that Greg Prince gave at you know that one of those first conferences and those those two um, speeches were so profoundly helpful for me and it was profoundly effective. And I think people looking in or listening in to Mormon stories, they have these little tiny, you know, experiences here and there with a podcast or with something being broadcast. And so to hear you talk about your own personal come from, it's not at all. I mean, we're so disconnected from what you're going through and what you're experiencing because we're just hearing what we need to hear, what we want to hear. Um and I also wanted to say that, you know, as we were kind of passing back and forth this outline for this interview, and I was listening to all of the different interviews that you had done over the years where you kind of spoke from this personal perspective, um, the Larson interview for me, I recognized in your language, that fully deconstructed language, because I had spoken that too. I mean, I had gone to that place where I had fully deconstructed and it came out loud and clear that you know that language i think people who've gone through that they recognize that i know it's not like we're coming at it from a place of oh he's spiritually low we just know what it means to fully fully accept doubt in terms of god and everything meaning morals everything to have a place of uncertainty be your base 
So it's interesting because from that point, it's been one year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's generally well understood within the Mormon, com- Mormon Stories community that there's been a shift in you. In fact, when we opened up the question, you know, to the Facebook page for questions, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people indicated, what's going on with John? <laughs> Where is he now? So now I want to get back into, I, I really, I'm fascinated of how you recover from this place. Um, and I also want to know if you do looking back at the, at the conferences, is your overall takeaway a regret that you did them? Or do you feel that they were beneficial? I mean, I, I attended one of them. And I mean, I met, I met great friends that are still dear, dear friends today from that conference. And so, my, you know, my one experience was positive, but I want to know from your personal perspective, was it good for you or not? So it's, it's I'm ambivalent about them. Okay. Um, I think that we worked really hard to have an uplifting and a constructive tone. And I think for the most part, pretty much for the most part, we succeeded. I think great talks, great musical performances, great attendance, anywhere from in a small city, 80, 80 to 100 people to three, two or 300 people at some of the bigger events. Um, I love the fact that we brought people together. Friendships, people email me all the time. The friendships that I made at the Houston conference or the friendships that I made at the Denver conference or the Arizona conference or the Boise conference are, are friends that I'll have for life. So I, I, I see that as a good thing. And I see the events as a good thing. And I think it was, we had good intentions and I think it was beautiful in many ways. So that is, I still feel that way. I don't, I don't regret them. Um, and I think a lot of beautiful things come from them, came from them, and are still bearing fruit. The what, what's been hard has two things. Were two things I feel three things I feel badly about. One is that they came at such a heavy cost to my family, and it came at a very heavy, awful, terrible cost to my wife and kids. And, you know, no success can compensate for failure in the home. It's true. And I always just sort of accepted that in a trite way. But I really thought I was saving the world. I thought I was saving souls and alleviating suffering. But but you can't do that if you don't have things, if you don't have your own soul in a good place and your own family. It's hypocritical. And so all that was built in some ways on the suffering of my family. And I regret that. The second thing is that um, there was a, there was no, I, I never was comfortable talking at these things. And I, it was the most awful part about it was that people would bear their testimonies at the end, the little story sharing. And every one or two testimonies would say, thank you, John DeLynn. Thank you, John DeLynn, for what you're doing. Thank you. And it was that was awful for me because they were, they were grateful, but it felt dangerous. It felt like egoic. It felt like, I am I setting myself up to be a prophet here? It, are they just swapping out who they're worshiping or what they're worshiping? And should anybody, is, is this some big ego trip that I'm just assembling for my own personal void and lack of fulfillment that I'm, you know, I, so I, I don't know how to piece that all together. At the time, I felt like my motives were pure. At the time, it was just all about the pain and suffering. But it was it, that part was awful. I, I needed to be there because we'd get bigger draws if I attended. And if I spoke, people would come. And I wasn't going to put a big piece of paper, don't mention John's name in your... Like, that almost felt more egoic. So there was some element of the cult of personality that I just was never comfortable with. And felt like it was just dangerous for me, for my soul, for them, for everybody. Because I felt like I was just having them trade a one prophet for another. You know, one set of dogmas for another. And and I didn't think it was good for me to put myself in that position. 
But the third thing that's been really hard is is to keep witnessing what happened. And people ended up leaving the church. People that had been believers weren't and then got divorced. And 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 and, and again, what would happen after these these conferences? In some of these communities, they would hold parties and they'd smoke weed and they would uh you know wives would make out or you know i i wasn't at these events uh, i was at a couple but not i never like watched people doing sexual things but i would hear about uh, you know a lot of behaviors that that felt dangerous and i don't judge that like i don't look at those people as bad and i don't enforce my morality on others and i'm not morally perfect at all but like i just i sat and i said I'm glad people are getting together and I'm glad they're having a good spiritual experience. But in many instances, it, I worry that they've traded down. That, that yeah, there are problems with the church, but, but there are a lot of problems with trying to have an open marriage. You know? And I, to be honest, I, I would probably pick the problems of being in the church versus the problems of trying to navigate an open marriage or becoming addicted to drugs or committing adultery you know and that you know and that's it's, it just seems like that naturally was the outgrowth of so many of these communities and i don't want to color them as these debaucherous immoral because that's that wouldn't be fair beautiful moral healthy friendships i mean micah was a part of the communities in phoenix and bad things happen in phoenix but beautiful things happen in phoenix and bad things happen in boise and good things happen in boise same with denver colorado springs Good things have happened, but I couldn't help but feel responsible for the bad. And and at the end, so much of the discourse in these Facebook communities that I created, they just became post-Mormon angry groups because it's really hard to moderate respectful discourse in one forum. But in 90 forums where people are meeting face to face, it's impossible. And so the whole enterprise of Mormon stories, which was, we support you if you believe, we support you if you want to stay, but we support you if you want to go. All the communities became in effect post-Mormon communities. And I felt like I don't want to I don't want to just be another post-Mormon or ex-Mormon community. That's we don't need that. Like that there's plenty of that. And I certainly don't want to be that. And I don't want to as as much as I had that devil on my shoulder that was angry, I didn't want to screw with people's lives and wreck people's lives. And I just I felt like it was just more power and influence than I had been mature enough to steward. Does that make sense? Yes. Because the come from is so different from me, I didn't experience any of the negative. Um, and, I, you know, hearing you say it, on the one hand, I'm frustrated because that is such a stereotype that is that is kind of placed, you know, for peop- on people. If you leave the church, that means that down the road, you know, that these things, bad things are going to happen. You're going to start sinning. On the one hand, I feel frustrated because that hasn't been my own personal experience. That hasn't happened for my husband and I. Um, But we've gotten that judgment. And on the other hand, we have to acknowledge that 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 does happen. That does happen. Um, So it's just interesting. Yeah, I mean... I guess it's hard to look it in the face. Well, yeah, and I and I've gone back and forth because I was almost there. Like I was I was moving in that direction. And and I so I'll go I'll go on the record. Can you leave the church and be moral? Absolutely. Can you leave the church and be happy? Absolutely. Does leaving the church mean you become an adulterous, you know, drug using immoral person? No, not necessarily. And does all that happen in the church? Yes, in different places. So I I don't mean to stereotype this. And I don't even mean to say that it's bad. Like, I'm very sure that a lot of these people were responsible. They went through things. They grew from it. And they've ended up in happier places. So I I do not say all this out of a, of a, out of a way to stereotype or condemn or judge. And I don't. But um, all this stuff was happening 
in association with what I was trying to do. And um, it felt, like I said, it felt more serious than I uh, was uh, competent and spiritually and emotionally mature to steward and shepherd. I was not, I was not the soul that um, could lead a movement responsible enough to feel um, to feel good about all the implications of what I was doing. That I just wasn't a good enough man to be able to to do that. So it sounds like you hit rock bottom. Yeah, totally. Yeah, by February, March of 2012, I hit rock bottom. Okay, so this is the part of the interview where I really want to switch the tone. Because personally, in my own life, in this last year, I've discovered um, what <laughs> I like to call reconstruction. And I got that from Jared Anderson, who put a, a label on what I'm going through. So I'm assuming... Um, just from a little bit of interaction that we've had and things that you've posted on Facebook that you did that as well. And can we now switch and kind of really focus on how that started and or talk about what that looked like for you? Yeah, so so I think the Larson interview was was the worst time for me. I, I, I've worn my garments through, um, throughout this whole thing. I wasn't wearing my garments... During that time, I just kind of stopped, and and I don't mean to make a big deal of that, but I mean that was just sort of I was that was my that was my darkest, worst time, angriest time, bitterest time, and then so the strange thing strange thing that happened was my son's birthday is in February, his eighth birthday, and I um, I wasn't paying tithing, but um, in my own twisted way, I felt like I I should be able to baptize my son. Um, looking back now, I probably wasn't, I probably didn't have good grounds to feel worthy to baptize my son. But I felt like I was, and I should. And mostly importantly, he wanted, he wanted to baptize me. He wanted me to baptize him. So, so I, I went to my bishop, and at first it, it looked like he was going to let me baptize him but not confirm him because I wasn't paying tithing. Um, confirmation is a Melchizedek priesthood ordinance, and you have to be temple recommend worthy to perform a Melchizedek priesthood ordinance, but not for baptism. So that's how it was kind of looking. But um, but then, uh, but then, my stake president. I get a phone call from the stake president clerk, and he says, "The stake president wants to meet with you." And I just freaked out because I'm like, they're going to excommunicate me. They're going to call a court, you know. And um, this was right all around that time of the UVU thing and and uh, the Maxwell Institute stuff. And and so I I met with them just like ready to go to war. I, I actually brought in, you know, recording devices, recorded all the discussions and what I envisioned happening was he's going to excommunicate me. I'm going to record the whole thing and then I'm going to post it to the Internet and and expose the church for what it is. You know, that's how dark it had gotten for me. And so. And so the crazy, even most more awful thing was in my conversations with the state president, I found out that the bishop having never spoken with me, had initiated an investigation on me where he appointed two members of the ward to start following my things on Facebook, writing down what I write, trying to join some of the private forums that I was a member of and gather evidence to decide whether or not I could still stay a member. And some, you know, my, my elders quorum president was one of the two people asked. He had always been a someone that I really looked up to and admired. And, you know, to find out a couple months later that he had been secretly investigating me without ever telling me was just this awful, terrible feeling. And so I was on edge and ready to go to war and make it really public as if anybody really would care. 
But in my ego, I thought, oh, this will be big. And so. Can I ask a question <clears throat> right here? We're talking about the baptism of your son, which I find is pretty interesting given the circumstances, because it's so fundamentally a Mormon ordinance, rite of passage, tradition, um, however you want to characterize it. I mean, but Christ, it's Christian fundamentally. I mean, it's baptism. So I, f- I find it so interesting that you are so dedicated to this idea of baptizing your son and at the same time fully deconstructed. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's 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 all. And this is if I had one major theme that I would want to end with when we end, it's this disconnection between the intellect and the emotional and the spiritual. Emotionally and spiritually, I did not want to let Mormonism or that special moment between me and my son go. I baptized all my other children. I still loved the church. I was still trying to help the church, but I was angry at it. And so intellectually, I deconstructed the church, but emotionally and spiritually, I wasn't I wasn't ready uh, to, to say goodbye to that. And so I was fighting. And there's a part of me, this was the first time I'd been able to ever talk to my stake president. And for me, this was this test of like, are they going to accept me? I'm going to tell the stake president everything. I'm going to be fully honest, tell him all my concerns, and I'm going to see if he'll keep me. And for me, I, I was curious. I was like, I want them to say, we want you, we accept you, we love you, in spite of the fact that you're different. And then it would be this big healing thing. But the way I thought it was heading was in the other direction. And it was a real shocker when the stake president to one of our meetings showed up with the John Lar- John and Zilpha Larson interview fully transcribed. And he sat me down and he said, let me read to you what you said to John and Zilpha Larson just a couple months ago or however, whenever it was. And he read about the God stuff and the stuff about the Savior and the atonement and all these things that I had said in a bad place kind of flippantly. And he said, I, I have a hard time feeling like I would be responsible if I let you baptize your son, knowing that you believe and feel these things. And so he said, no, you can't baptize your son. Where were you with God in terms of, I mean, I know you'd fully deconstructed. Was this about God at all for you? Or was this just about your relationship to the church? It wasn't about, at the time, I had let God go and I had let spirituality go and I had let I was totally checked out of my emotions. I had kind of let my family go. So the idea of worthiness was kind of a non... I mean, in your own mind, you were you were thinking in terms of... Yeah, it's like, you can't judge me. Right. Okay. And I was, I, you know, not drinking, not smoking. Right. You know, uh, trying to live an honest life. You know, trying to be a good dad, a good husband, trying to help people. Like, in my mind, I felt like I was a good guy. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they didn't let you baptize your son, and I assume you had to come home and tell him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way it worked was he said, he didn't say, no, you can't do it. He said, we're going to need to start having some conversations, and I'm going to need to understand you better, and and you're probably going to need to help me understand a few things and we're probably going to need to get you to a different place before you're going to be allowed to do that. But I thought, okay, well, we'll talk for a few weeks or maybe a month or two. And and it would either be they'd excommunicate me and I'd burn the effort down, you know, or he would understand and be empathetic and supportive and he'd let me do it. But I envisioned that happening within the space of a few weeks or a month or two. And it took a lot longer. Uh, I still haven't baptized Winston. He turns he turns nine next month. So he's waiting. He's waiting, yeah. For you to do it. And you you want to do it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not that was not what what brought me back. Okay. In so fact that that probably uh made it harder for me to come back because I, I'm not the type of guy that's gonna you know, I, I kind of am a little bit anti-authoritarian and I a little bit rebellious. And so um, it's not like he's, I'm being good 
and he's using my son as hostage to to sort of manipulate me. That's not what's happening. What happened was we started meeting weekly and we've met weekly for almost a year now. So imagine that I've been having a weekly hour long conversation with my state president for about a year. Wow. <laughs> That's intense. Yeah. You like him. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's that's the amazing thing is that I went into these discussions with my stake president thinking that I would go out in a blaze of glory, burning everything down as I went. But he started listening to the podcast. He um, he started, uh, he said, what books do you want me to read? What websites do you want me to go to? Tell me all your issues and let's talk about them. And so that's what that's what it was for months and months and months. It was just, I want to learn everything that I can learn, and I want to understand as much as you want to tell me. This is your time, and you know, I, early on, I just said, you you guys talk about leaving the ninety nine to go after the one and the lost sheep, but you don't live it. You you guys, you know, I, I basically said to him, you've never, you've had these concerns for a while. You've never called me in here. You've never tried to understand where I come from. I represent a lot of people that are in pain. You haven't done any work to try and... My bishop, even less. You know, I'd gotten a new bishop, and he was kind of the same way. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. And so I'm like, you guys you guys are hypocrites. And I, he took it to heart. And he's like, okay, I'll meet with you every week. I'll meet with you as much as you want. You tell me. And so that's what we started doing. And... Um, at first, it was just, again, me recording every conversation, you know, eager to someday expose him and and catch him and the contradictions. And, you know, I, I was in a really agitated place. <clears throat> but over time, he was just loving and empathetic and encouraging and supportive. Did he and ever show signs of being disturbed by the things that you were telling him to read or the podcast or I mean did he express any he would, kind of con he expressed empathy and he would say okay I can see why polyandry bothers you or bothers other people I can see why DNA evidence is a is a problem for many I you know over time he would he did the work he did the emotional work to say, I can understand your point of view. I don't think, and he started reading Rough Stone Rolling. I think he's still reading it. And I don't think he ever got to the place where he's, at least he never let on that he ever got to the place where he was doubting or questioning or disturbed for his testimony. But that, I, I didn't need that. Right. What I needed was him to say, okay, I know all the issues. I've read it. I, I get it. And they are legitimate. And but, but, but you're still welcome here. And I'll do everything I can to, to be a positive force in your life and within the stake, try and help other people as well. Right. And that, that's kind of what I needed. But did you, at the same time, feel like maybe he wouldn't be strong enough either? Did you ever go into it with this idea of if he reads this stuff and if he listens to my podcast, he'll have to question too? What I thought was going to happen was I would say all these things that bothered me and he would get angry at me and eventually lose his patience and hold a court. Okay. That that was the outcome that I thought was. I didn't I didn't see him changing. Okay. What happened was a little bit surprising is that I lost interest in raising problems with him. And he said, "Can I just start teaching you the equivalent to the missionary discussions of the plan of salvation?" Like, "Do you mind if I now I've listened to you, can you listen to me for a while?" And so he started like he started with like God. And he would like teach me about his views on God for an hour. How how many months after the 
you, you know, the sit-downs began. Did he say <clears throat> that? Was it like a few weeks in? or was No, it was it... a few months. Okay. Yeah, he, he let me just talk and, and complain and express issues. I mean, the truth is he talked in most of the... It, it, what would happen was I would say, well, let's talk DNA or let's talk. And then he would... Yeah, he would actually ask me, can you email me ahead of time the issues you want to talk about? I'll do some reading and then I'll come ready to discuss. So I would come to the meeting. I would say, let's talk about this or that problem. And then most of the time he would try and give explanations. And never were the explanations intellectually satisfactory to me. What I was moved by and what started changing with him and then with Margie at home and the kids was his love and his spirit. In his emotions, he would cry. He's cried probably every every interview we've been in, and not in a access to sort of manipulative, unstable type crying. This is a man who has been transformed by his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and wants to do good and love people. So when he cries, it's because he wants me to be happy and he wants my family doesn't want to see my family have so much pain and he doesn't want to see someone you know leave the fold and so his crying and his emotions were sincere but most importantly i i started being losing interest in having intellectual discussions cuz he wasn't moving me intellectually but he was moving me spiritually and he was moving me emotionally and he was a, he was he was displaying a level of of love that I hadn't been expressing for years. He was show he had been transformed by his understanding of the gospel and it was apparent. I felt the spirit. I felt his love, his patience and his commitment. And he he showed me as a man of a character and integrity and commitment and compassion. And so I started, the conversations changed where they became doctrinal, where he would want to teach me. But um, even the doctrine that he taught me wasn't super interesting to me. But I just kept feeling like I had made a friend. I felt like I this guy loved me and I want to respect what he was trying to do for me. And, um, and maybe through this dialogue he'll be able to help a lot of other people. And, but then, then, and this is most surprising at all, I found myself confessing to him sins, you know, ways that I had fallen off the tracks and ways that I felt spiritually in decay. And I started like, like this, the prideful me would have never, ever allowed myself to put myself at a position where um, anyone could judge me or that I would even feel like they had a right to know anything about my private life. But what I found myself doing is trusting him emotionally and spiritually that he would keep confidences. And I started using him like someone would use their bishop to confess and get spiritual guidance and support. And that was a real surpriser for me. But I did. I confessed my sins to my stake president and he was really sweet and supportive and nurturing and we're meeting this Sunday like the meetings continue come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith to discuss this podcast check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org the music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
See you.